Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with former Santa Barbara Mayor Sheila Lodge. Sheila, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Every time I have the opportunity to interview you, I always feel special, lucky that you're able to share a lot of your knowledge with me. And I appreciate the fact you read my stories. And when I botch something, you know, you let me know. So I really appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, Sheila, you're planning commissioner recently reappointed, you're, you're still right there, you know, you're, you're a leader at Santa Barbara, you know, in the city of Santa Barbara. So I want to talk to you about uh, the Santa Barbara mayor's race. I want to talk to you about the city council election. And from there, we can sort of springboard a little bit onto some of the issues that we as a city are facing in terms of development and housing, homelessness, and these issues that are playing out in the election. But I want to lead off with, I have to tell you, I was surprised when I found out that you were endorsing Randy Rouse for Santa Barbara mayor. I thought, huh, that doesn't seem like a match. And so I'm hoping you can sort of talk about that. And this is no judgment on my part on Randy or, or you or anyone, but I just sort of, when I think of who Sheila Lodge might support, I don't necessarily think Randy is at the top of that list, but, but maybe it says a lot about the rest of the candidates, but can you talk, <laughs> Sheila, um, you, you're, you're, you're in Randy's promotional material. You're supporting him. Why tell me what's, 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 on it. Yes. what's going on, Sheila? Tell tell us about that. I first met, met Randy when I was and saw it. Well, I had met him before, you know, very casually, briefly. I didn't really know what he was like in, in operation in a city role until I was first reappointed to the planning commission in 2009. And I was the planning commission liaison to the uh, downtown parking committee and there is something so open straightforward full of common sense about randy i was really impressed um and you may remember when this was when dos got elected to the board of supervisors the council had an appointment to make to that seat. Well, I applied, and Randy applied, and I, um, that council was like anybody, but she went off. <laughs> <laughs> that was what Grant House was thinking, at least that's what I heard, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way the votes went, you know, and the, uh, <laughs> you know, one part of the council, council kept nominating me and voting for me, and the other part kept voting against me. Uh, but I wasn't all that concerned when, you know, I would have liked to be on the council, but um, on the other hand, there are, there are plenty of tough issues to deal with on the planning commission, but, but the city council, you've got a budget, you've got homelessness, which, you know, you talk about it as an issue now. It was an issue when I was mayor. It became, it became an issue when I was mayor. Um, and, you know, and, and planning issues are, they're pretty much the same same issues, and uh, so anyway. Um, so then, when I saw who the candidates were for the, um, well, let me go back back a bit. Do you remember ten years ago when I called a news conference and I endorsed? Were you there when I endorsed 
Gail Francisco, yeah. of all people, and Michael Self and Randy Rouse. Yes. Yeah, I, I actually, it was, I may have been in San Jose at that time, but I remember reading about it and thinking that was, uh, you know, that was unique. It was different. <laughs> well, I did because, you know, I'm a lifelong Democrat, quite liberal, uh, and, but, and, and Dale Francisco, I don't deal with any, agree with him on anything except planning issues, which were, and there was some, you know, it was the general plan was under, the revision was underway, and uh, the updating, and we agreed on that, and on, on fiscal matters, and um, Michael's self was someone who, we, she, she had sort of the same view as I had, the same vision of how Santa Barbara should develop as I did. And when it came to other issues, she said, as long as nobody's harming anybody else, it's none of my business. You know, and, and she was considered, but she was, I got annoyed because, you know, Dale definitely is a conservative, but Michael and Randy were being labeled as conservatives. Randy, I don't you know, he, he just doesn't think it's anybody's business who he's voted for, who he's, he's supported, you know, you know, there's his, his votes on the, on the council, and you can see where he stands. Uh, but he's, he's quite liberal, actually. Um, he could, uh, but what I got, things really changed uh, from the time when I was on the council. Uh, at that time, people, the party, the Democratic Party wasn't much involved. And the unions were involved. They would support candidates they, li they liked, but um, they, there wasn't that, <clears throat> that much involvement. But they had changed up to about, over the time. And I didn't think for the better. Uh, <clears throat> some council members were dealing with the unions on the side when they're absolutely supposed to maintain an arm's, arm's length distance between themselves and the unions. Uh, and the um, and the party, the Democratic Party was kind of calling the shots. And that was not necessarily what I saw as the, you know, the way before when they, that we were, you know, there was a mix of Republicans, old fashioned Republicans, I should say, and Democrats on the planning on the city council, but nobody cared. Nobody really knew. Some people thought I was a Republican. Um, and we were focused on doing what was best for the city. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't always agree because we had different ideas about what was best, but we, we weren't, none of us were thinking about running for some other office. Um, and we just did the city's business. And I think we got a lot of good things done. And the change, you know, that it's city or government employment is the only case where the employees have a chance to influence who their bosses are going to be. Yeah. And, um, and when the, 
when the uh, council members look more to the unions or to the Democratic Party for how they should vote, I don't think they're doing the best job that this that they could for the city. So, so let, let me um, ask you a couple of questions here and sort of maybe see if I can zero in on a couple of points. Um, it seems as though, you know, you you are a and correct me here, um, preservationist. Um, you're very much trying to preserve Santa Barbara's unique appeal, its charm. Uh, when it comes to housing, you want to be very careful about the type of housing we build. When it comes to the type of new development, <clears throat> height is significant. Uh, you care about congestion, traffic, the environment. You know, these are sort of these these traits that you you really value. And Randy, you know, he's not a Republican. You know, he, he's in no party preference. I don't think he's ever been a Republican. He used to be a Democrat. He's sort of this moderate. Um, how much of your support of Randy is really a, more of a rebuke of the Democratic Party and Mayor Kathy Murillo? Um, are, are you out there waving the flag saying Randy is the future of this city? <laughs> or is it just, I, you just can't support the party's candidate? Well, I'm, I never have supported Kathy. Okay. Because I just never have thought that she had what the task of being a council member or mayor required, uh, the qualities that were that are necessary. Um, and, you know, when I looked at there has, well, remember what Alejandra Gutierrez said about some of the council members when she endorsed Nina Johnson? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The division and clickishness and so on. Um, that is a, it's very unfortunate. You know, well, as I, as I said, you know, we have, when I was in office, we had a council that worked together. And, um, so, and I think Randy is uh, his steadiness, his you know his his thoughtfulness, and and he he cares about Santa Barbara, about the things about Santa Barbara that I do. He understands the importance of the character of the community, and it's it's not just what he and I like about it. You know, that's what the people of Santa Barbara like. And if you ask them about, you know, that's the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, AIA asked in a survey, how high should the buildings be? A majority, 54% said three stories was plenty, thank you. And the city's own survey in relationship to the FARs, people didn't want, the majority wanted no more than two, which is... Keeps it, keeps it into Santa Barbara scale. Yeah. And the main thing about going high, you know, they, the, the architects talk about it and say, oh, I build a few tall buildings. And, and you know, look, there's 820 State Street. That's the building that um, it's next to the entrance to El Paseo. And it just overwhelms El Paseo. Uh, and it's 88 feet, 28 feet over El Paseo. That got, you know, we've got that. You know, that's fine. And others have made similar 
comments. So that, that happened because the owners who were on that property were also the owners of El Paseo. And they threatened to like get rid of El Paseo and build a new building there if they didn't get the extra height on that, on that building. They were blackmailed. And uh, Earl Chase was, was opposed. Uh, Luda Maria Riggs was opposed. I didn't include in my book uh, because I, I lost the, the reference, but Luda Riggs said that somewhere, she said that she, that she ruined El Paseo. She, she was hired as an architect to, by Victor Gruen, which, who was a major national company designing the building next door, which you know, hasn't existed for a long time, but it was, it was built for Joseph Magnum and then GE Temple rented the office space above. So I think it was three levels of Joseph Magnum, which was a, a nice, um, clothing, you know, somewhat upscale semi-department store, mostly clothing store. Uh, with GE Temple and the, and the stories, the office floors above. Um, her, I'm, I'm, I managed to go. Um, I asked the city historian to get out the plans for me. Mm-hmm. And Luda Riggs's name is on the sheets that are technical, uh, but they're not on any of the elevation sheets. And uh, she didn't like them. <laughs> she was she was hired, you know, and she had conflicts with the owners as well, who, who wanted a kind of uniformity. Anyway, um, you know, to use that as an example of why it's it's okay to do that is not okay with me. Uh, it, it happened on, in a way under under threat, but the main thing is that the architects widen the extra height so they can make taller ceilings in the units you know, make them more livable. Well, you know, how, how, how much, you, how, how useful is an extra foot or two over your head? What, and and they're, they're ready to get rid of uh, open yard, outside space for the tenants. So let, let me ask you, you see this, right? You're on the planning commission, so you see these projects and you see they come in and... Well, let, let, me, let me finish. Okay. Um, the main problem with it is that it doesn't provide the kind of, end up providing the kind of housing we need. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they now have the 10% inclusionary provision, but that means that 90% of them are market rate. Um, recently, the council, the planning commission had before it a project at 630, I think it's 630 Chapala Street, where the uh, Volkswagen auto dealership used to be. Um, very nice looking project and no parking. That's another incentive that the, the city gave to the developers, um, 30 or 40 units. And on uh, the site visit, I asked the, and, and well, they will have you know 10% of them, three or four you know, will be in the moderate, or moderate income affordable range while the rest will be market rate. So I asked the architect developer at the site visit, you know, will the, will the rents be lower because there is no parking? And he looked at me and he said, the rents will be what the market will bear. And, and I, the, 
the thing that the thing that happens with the market rate units is you know it's new people in the community, new population. Uh, they have needs, uh, and they end up creating a demand or creating more jobs because there are more things that need to be done for the additional population, most of which are generally lower income, and they cre- end up creating a demand for even more of low-income in- low or, or afford- moderate-income affordable housing. And so the jobs housing imbalance gets worse. 20, up to close to 20% of the units would have to be affordable to maintain the same balance that we have, which is a way out of balance. It wouldn't improve it in any way if 20% of the units were affordable. But it's just, it's not providing what the city needs. And what the city needs is capital A affordable housing. And we've got to get the, you know, try, try to get the state to provide funding for it. They keep telling us, you know, we got to build it. Well, they took away the redevelopment agency, which was the source of what we did for years in providing affordable housing. I in, years ago, it didn't, it wasn't RENA numbers, regional housing needs assessment numbers, you know, where the state determines, you know, we've got to build, the city has to build somewhere in more units because of the jobs housing imbalance. It used to be something called fair share. During the time I was mayor, there was a period when Santa Barbara met that fair share by 700%. And we were I, one of the very few cities in the state that met it at all. But, you know, there, there hasn't, you know, the, the city has, has done its, what it should in terms of uh, getting affordable housing built. But there isn't the the funding for it. The only way to get it is through nonprofits, housing authority, or other nonprofit housing providers. What do you what do you say to those? And we've heard this that there's this sort of escalator effect. Uh, if you build housing, yes, it's going to be market rate. But some people who are in less affordable housing will move up, and then they'll you know they'll be able to rent those places, and then it frees up other rental housing. And so it actually is not the perfect fit when you have market rate, but it actually does alleviate some of the housing pressure in the community. You've heard the developers say that. What do you think of that? What I hear is when the existing tenants move up the, out, the rents go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's still, it's the, the point is that there are more people living in the city of Santa Barbara. And their effect on the need, you know, their creation of more jobs, therefore more housing need. There's a whole community of people who are really pushing right now for Santa Barbara to change, for Santa Barbara to build high density housing. We're seeing it play out on on State Street. You know, we're seeing sort of this evolution of oh, we want these uh, these e-bikes, we want this alternative transportation, we want services for young people, you know, they say that for, for a new generation of people who can live in Santa Barbara, UCSB graduates will go to open mic on the council and say, you know, I can't afford to live here, 
Um, I should be able to, you know, housing is a right, a human right, and I should be able to live here. And so we need to build more housing. We need to build higher. We need to build downtown. Um, you know, there's that movement. So I guess the bigger question is, do you think Santa Barbara can hold that momentum back? Or is it inevitable that Santa Barbara's unique charm and its character and its small town feel is is destined to to be lost because people have to adjust to the the modern pressures facing the community. I hope not. Uh, people have been saying that for years. Mm -hmm. When I was first on the council, and uh, we we really changed what we lowered the density. Uh, that was that was allowed. Uh, to fit within, you know, our water resources, traffic handling capacity, uh, sewage treatment plant capacity, and so on. Uh, and if we hadn't, with all of what the state has been doing to us, uh, we would really be in bad shape. It's just, you know, in doing research for the, my book, I came across some comments from visitors to Santa Barbara in the 1880s, talking about the high cost of housing. And it's, you know, there's a limited amount of land. We can't, Santa Barbara's between the mountains and the sea. There is, you know, there's no, no more land is being made. You know, we have county, county and uh, on either side of it. And by the way, you know, we've already given, the city's already given incredible incentives to developers. Uh, our neighbors, they have a th allow a third of the density that Santa Barbara does. Why should, why should all of this be dumped on, on Santa Barbara? You know, we're part of the South Coast. Carpinteria, the, the maximum they, they allow is, I think it's 20 units to the acre, and we allow up to 63. Um, and it, they're, they're just, because we have been so protective of Santa Barbara and what makes it special, you know, people who can afford to live anywhere, many of them come here. You know, and then we still have the, view, the views in most cases and, and, and the climate is changing somewhat, but it's still one of the best climates in the world. Um, and I think it's something that's worth, worth preserving. Um, and, and as I said, we, we have, the city has done all that it can in terms of providing capital A affordable, you know, really affordable subsidized housing. Um, let, let me uh, let me step in here. We talked about the mayor's race and your support of Randy. Have you made endorsements in the two city council races? I mean, I, I, I know you endorsed Kristen Sneddon uh, and you have, um, mm -hmm. you know, let, I guess let's start there and then we'll go into the other, uh, it's district six, but um, that's a really interesting race because Kristen Sneddon of course was elected the first time without the support of the Democratic Party. She did just fine. She beat two strong candidates and she had more votes than both of them combined. 
and um, now she, yeah, and now she she has the party's support, the endorsement. She interviewed for it. She sought it. You've talked about your position with the party, and she's going up against Barry Reed, who's raised. 230,000, lots of money to win this seat. And I would imagine Barrett would be sort of the worst possible candidate from your perspective as somebody who's coming in with the developer sort of attitude. Can you talk about that race and, and what's at stake um, if, if, if Barrett pulls off the upset and why you support Kristen? I tried to talk Barrett out of running. I couldn't figure out why he was running. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, I, I think I asked, I was, was it a Jerry Roberts interview? You know, what's his beef with Kristen? Uh, and he, you know, he serves on the planning commission. So I've had an opportunity to observe him. And he's, he's very nice. He's charming uh, and good looking. Uh, so is Kristen. And Kristen gets it about Santa Barbara. And, and what's special about it. And keeping you know keeping some of that now barrett talks a great talk about that but on the planning commission you know if the the developer wants to go over the height limit yeah sure he votes for it uh he votes for and and was really pushing on trying to make things easier for developers i suppose well and, and some of it was really odd uh, in the hearing we had on 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 um, was very he was very concerned about project creep. I had the feeling that he must have run into this where he was working on a project on an existing building, and parts of it are not up to code. And the building department, you know, you've got to you've got to bring the whole thing up to code. Well, and he he wanted to kind of wanted if it wasn't part of the project, he wanted to separate that out. But you know some some of these up not up to code are, are things like you know electrical and so on. Uh, you know there are safety issues involved. Um, so he he and and Kristen has done a great job. <laughs> she she's concerned. She's thoughtful. Uh, I know sometimes she does her thinking out loud, which I encourage her not to, but makes, makes her seem as if she doesn't know what she, you know, that she's indecisive and so on. But she, she is, and she's, well, she reminds me of a young me, to tell the truth. Oh, okay. Good. Were, were you disappointed <laughs> that she sought the Democratic Party endorsement when oh, you could argue? Oh, that, that, seemed like, that seemed like a a natural thing to do she is a democrat and mm -hmm. uh, do you think she needed it to beat barrett reed to be i mean we don't know yet but do you think i, I don't know i don't know um yeah okay so so sorry did you have did you want to add something okay um, are you concerned? What do you think of the amount of money Barry Reed has raised uh, in order to unseat? I think suspicious. You know? <laughs> <laughs> why are you know why why are real estate and developer interests so enthusiastic about giving him piles of money? Yeah. 
So uh, let's move over to District 6. And, uh, you know, Megan Harmon, the incumbent, is uh, running for re-election against Nina Johnson, Zachary Pike, Jason Carlton. It's really a race between her and Nina, because um, Nina's longtime city employee, has connections. She has endorsements. You know, she's the most formidable of the challengers. Have you made an endorsement in this contest? I haven't made an endorsement, but I told Nina that I would support her. Okay. Uh, she didn't specifically ask for my endorsement. Uh, one of the issues is the FARs, which I think would be a big mistake. And uh, I don't know if you, did you watch the last planning commission meeting on, on FARs? No, I did not. Um, I heard it was a barn burner though, um, but I did miss that one. <laughs> <laughs> It's on my list to go back and watch. Oh, well, um, you know, the council gave staff the direction, you know, develop FAR. And uh, as, a, as a way of determining building mass. And so they were doing what they were told to do. Well, the planning commission Two of the commissioners felt they didn't have enough information to answer the questions staff was asking. Uh, three of us were, were sort of no, 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 all the way around. And um, one, other, one other was wasn't all that enthusiastic about it either. Um, Again, it's what it, it's going to do. It's an incentive to developer, and I think the big thing is, you know, they know they'll know what they they can do with their property. You know, well, you get so much, so many layers of development that you can do, and at the higher and and so the higher it is, they're going to build to the full the full thing and a, you know, the full allowable cubic footage, and you're going to have boxes, and this is what. The are in the um, the AIA proposal. That's what it is. In full of five story boxes that come straight up, and again, they don't provide. They've robbed the city of its character. They didn't even you know when I came to the planning commission, and they put so much work into it. Uh, the AIA and the charrette that they had, and all these plants. They came, and I looked at it, and I said, "Well, you know," and State Street is full of fountains and other things. I said, where will the parades go? And it's like, they hadn't, <laughs> we're going to wipe those out of Santa Barbara's culture? Or I, I don't know. Um, it's, anyway, I, I happened, uh, Rob Federicks, director of the city's housing authority, sent a letter and made comments at one of the hearings on the issue in which he expressed you know concern about it because every time another incentive is given the value of the property goes up and it um it results in making it harder and harder for the housing authority or other nonprofit housing providers to to do what they do uh, i happened to see rob pearson the former director of the housing authority that was there for years, and the housing authorities have done a great job all, all along. Um, 
he said he had gotten into a big argument with Megan Harmon because he's opposed to FARs. So Nina Johnson thinks it's the wrong direction to go. And uh, Megan is very enthusiastically on fire. She didn't even want the, when the council just talked about it, she didn't even want to go to less than four. Well, the draft map is the highest is tier three, but even that would, again, change the character of downtown and not provide the housing that we need. Isn't Nina there, Johnson more, more associated with the architects than, than, than Megan Harmon is in terms of her support for this election? I saw a letter from Cassandra, the architect Cassandra Ensberg in the Independent urging people to vote for Nina. Yeah. Uh, she was very much involved with the charrette. Um, so, I, I, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, how, how much of her support comes from them. Is that the only issue you have with 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 Megan Harmon um, in terms of support? Um, one could frame Megan Harmon as being uh, really intelligent, um, curious, ambitious, smart on the issues, high energy, somebody that you would want to work with in terms of helping to develop strong ideas at City Hall. And if you don't agree with her all the time, well, she's better than some others on the council who are observers as opposed to actually interactive. Could you not make that argument about her? And, 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 and you know, it's better to have somebody with that kind of energy and ideas than, than someone who's, who's worked for years and, you know, with the, you know, in a, in a, in a city staff position. Nina's had plenty of energy and has come up with plenty of good ideas. That's why so many of the business community downtown who have worked with her mm -hmm. support her, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I attempted to talk to Megan and she didn't say that she was refusing to talk to me, but she set it up so that it was clear she didn't want to talk to me. Mm -hmm. okay. so, and and she, she is very smart, but sometimes when watching her in action, I, she, I, I get the feeling she's calculating the politics you know, of, of going this way and going that way and would she be on the winning side and that that is more important to her than the issue. So, um, you I, have any I, have, I have lost um, my admiration for her. Okay. Do you have any predictions? There's one thing to like, you know, who we want to win versus on the ground who we think is going to win. Do you have any predictions you want to give us in terms of what it's going to look like uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning? I'm, re I'm reluctant to, if you go by the number of yard signs, I think, you know, I don't, well, maybe Megan isn't using yard signs. I haven't seen any for her. Uh -huh. And Nina has lots of signs around. Yeah. Um, um, and I seem to see more in the areas I've been more Kristen Snedden signs than Barrett Reed. Well, I have a feeling, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you feeling? You know, there's sort of this narrative that, you know, I've talked about, you know, um, Jerry Roberts and I have talked about it, you know, that 
James Joyce is a strong candidate and uh, he has a similar base in terms of the people who support Kathy. Maybe they're going to share some votes. They're going to split some votes and, and that's going to allow Randy to, uh, to win. You know, of course, Deborah Schwartz is in there, your colleague. So she's a factor too. Um, have you thought about the various scenarios that could play out? And do you give any of that, any sort of credibility that maybe James will hurt Kathy or, or, or maybe James will surprise us all and James will just, just take it. You know, have you thought about the various scenarios? Well, again, if you, if you, you go by the number of yard signs, I see Randy's all over the place. Uh-huh. Lots of them. Uh, I, I, I talked with, uh, with James and he's, he's very, very nice, but, uh, and, you know, we, it turns out that I taught school in the neighborhood where he's from, uh, near Baltimore. Oh, okay. Uh, and, you know, we talked about my experiences. I was at, I'd lived all my life in California until I was 18 when I foolishly got married the first time to someone who was a college student on the East Coast. And I ended up teaching in the school district while he was finishing his, his degree. Um, and, uh, you know, I really got into it with the teachers. I'd, I was teaching for about two weeks. And all of a sudden, I looked around my classroom. Where are all the black kids? And that's this is not this is 1958, long, long time ago. And I woke up to the fact that I was teaching in a segregated school system. And I went looking after that when I realized that for the, the school for the black children. And it was like the stereotypical semi shack on exposed pilings with a dirt playground. All the building I was in was the, you know, the traditional two-story large playground area. Um, it was just totally different, totally different. And um, I don't know if you want me to go into uh, What happened is that the, they, t- they had a teacher's institute where the teachers all met and there, there was no school for the children. And they, they supposedly were learning new things and hearing speakers who would give them new perspectives and so on and improve them as, as teachers. Well, they managed to get, oh, damn, Pearl Buck, a famous author of the time, to come talk to them. I was really impressed. Uh, people don't know much about her now. She found out that they, it was a segregated school system and they were going, you know, the black teachers wouldn't be attending. She said she wouldn't come unless they met together. Well, I talked to one of the teachers in my school. She was outraged. You know, how, 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 you know, she dearly loves the black mammy that raised her, but she knows her place. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, coming from a liberal background, we got into it, but I obviously didn't get anywhere. Things have changed, uh, not not quite as much as they should. But anyway, I, I have that experience in my background. 
So uh -huh. James, James just, and, and as far as I can tell, this is still all that he talks about is, is you know, getting people together and, and having a conversation. I think it takes more than that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I just, you know, and, and Randy having, having the past experience as a council member and his personal qualities. Um, actually, I was one of the pe I was one of the people that talked him into running in the first place. Twisted his arm. Ever sure to know that? <laughs> oh, well, I, 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 I don't know. Deborah started out talking about wanting to go back to a strong mayor form of government, and that really alarmed me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, so we sort of get your thoughts on, you know, the mayors and city council race. I want to talk to you about a couple of issues. Um, I was surprised when I watched the Planning Commission and saw this recent funk zone project where uh, the developer was talking or the architect was talking about the steps, the steps, the steps. And I looked at these renderings and I thought, there's no way this Planning Commission is going to go for this project. And then I heard mostly positive support that it was a good project and and, you know, it could be sort of this anchor. And I just thought, I hate going to the funk zone to report because I, I can't park anywhere. I have to park far away. Walk. Me too. You hear me say I only go there at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, and I, you know, I, I could park in the, you know, in the waterfront parking lot, you know, on the, on the other side of Cabrillo or the one across from it by the visitors, teeny visitor center. Um, but you know, particularly at night, I'm not, you know, I'm a little old lady. I'm not going to go wandering around in the dark there. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, the parking situation is terrible. Yeah. And what really got me is that, you know, we had considered a, um, a project at 121 East Mason, which is the other side of the railroad strike, same zone designation. Yeah. other side of the railroad tracks and it was you know one floor of commercial and three floors of residential some of which was going to be really affordable because they were processing it through the state bonus density uh, provisions and and when I saw this thing when I first you know was looking at this staff report and then at the drawings I thought all these you know a bunch of restaurants uh, and hotel rooms and a bunch of low-wage jobs, and where are these people going to live? And then it turns out that, I don't know why this is, but when that zone for that area was established, and it was not during my time, <laughs> uh, the council decreed that there would not be any residential. So we were kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah, so no housing could go there, but now you have, but even with what was proposed, it just seemed like a lot. I mean, 12 hotel rooms down there. I mean, we'll see what it ends up being. That was a very early sort of, hey, we've got some ideas. Let's get some feedback. We'll see what happens. Um, yeah, well, it, it's just, it's a, it's a real shame that they couldn't have included housing there. Okay. We got a couple more minutes left. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your book, Santa Barbara and Uncommonplace American Town. Uh, it's, 
anyone who reads it is going to learn a lot about Santa Barbara's history. And what I was struck by, and I wrote a story about it, was so many of the issues that we think are new, that we're dealing with, (laughs) people have faced the same issues more than once, you know, over the last hundred years or, you know, it's sort of like good context, a good reminder that Santa Barbara is where it's at because of the work of people over the generations fighting to preserve what makes it special. And um, it's not easy by a couple of different changes in time and history. We would have big towers. We would have a different sort of city. So I was struck by that. But can you talk a little bit about sort of the book and you know why should people pick it up why should they take an interest in it and particularly like people who just got here people just came here and think they oh Santa Barbara's sleepy let's change it like that crowd can you talk a little bit about that (laughs) I don't know I haven't encountered that crowd during my time around the crowd that I encounter is the people like in newcomers the new, new residents, mm-hmm. they, they come, you know, this place is wonderful and don't change a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, I, I wrote it because in 1973, uh, there was a change in the city council. And I was curious, and that council had a study done called The Impacts of Growth which talked, you know, talked about the impacts of growth. And their conclusions were that there are no advantages to growth. With growth, you know, the bigger cities, denser populations, and more people rubbing up against one another, you have more police need for police, you know, more issues around that, uh, you know, more demand on the resources. And about, such as water, which we don't have here. I mean, we have enough for the next few years, but you know, if the weather continues getting worse in terms of rain. Oh, and I'm, I'm so looking forward to tonight's rain. Uh, um, it, and and it, they looked at other cities of comparable size, you know, cities comparable to Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara then, the housing prices here were higher than just about everybody else's. Um, and anyway, I, I, I wanted to know where, where this all came from, how, and so, and I realized that the people who'd been involved, such as former council member Niall Utterbeck, were, you know, they were getting older and, you know, if I wanted to find out, he'd been very much involved in, in all of this. And he asked the question, you know, what would Santa Barbara's population be under the current zoning? Well, it was 140 to 150,000, more than twice what the existing population was. And um, so, and, and this, anyway, that's, that's when changes were made in the zoning to fit within our, our resources. And I, you know, and I went back to the to the beginning, the start of Santa Barbara, you know, which of course started with the Chumash, um, but then with the 
first non first Europeans to arrive um, and the building of the mission in the 17 was that was Presidio was started in 1782 and the mission if I'm remembering these numbers correctly and four years later the mission was started um, and so, so it's interesting Santa Barbara was a um, Vancouver and a British explorer came down the coast and he wrote about Santa Barbara that uh, that at the end of it, it was and others had commented about how it was just bare and dreary, no no vegetation. And uh, he said, what did he say? I don't know, something about a few a few scrabbly shrubs. That's that's all that there there were, and then he he and his crew cut down a few some of the few oak trees that were around for fuel on their ship for the day. But um, the people that that came here, the people started coming here in the around eighteen sixty to spend the winter here from the east coast, and and they found this whole this whole place, the spirit of the place, something special and uncommon and something that should be preserved and it got carried forward, you know, through people like Pearl Chase. Bernard Hoffman was the person in terms of the um, of the architecture. That was that was his thing. And and actually there's a 17th century Spanish guide to architecture, which says the architecture should be all of one style for, for a, the words is, you know, anyway, for, for the, for the beauty of the place, which is interesting when you consider that, you know, Santa Barbara's kind of gone down that path. Um, I had a kind of funny, well, an experience that really tickled me. I was talking to the publisher of the book wondering how many copies had been sold. And he said he'd sold 40 copies to a civic activist of Ojai who wanted them to give to people there to inspire them to try to, you know, to get engaged and protect what they have. Oh, okay. So That's I got that. Also, I, I gave a copy to our new... Uh, community development director who's from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And he sent a note back in which he said several people had told him that he must read this book. <laughs> yeah. So he was glad to have uh, have a copy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 uh it's a great book. It's a great read and, and uh it's uh it's not that long. You know, it's it's something oh, that you can read really quickly and uh, feel like you learn something about about Santa Barbara. And yeah, I've seen it at Chaucer's. It's obviously available online, so people can people can get it. I want to give you the last word because I need to wrap up here. Uh, just sort of, you know, I'm sort of skeptical, Sheila, that that this time, this period, that the preservationists are going to be able to hold the line. I, I think that. There are a lot of pressures on Santa Barbara to to change. Um, we're seeing a lot more of the 
progressives, the, the housing activists who are getting elected, who are, you know, on your planning commission and who are definitely pushing for sort of a sort of a different way of planning for Santa Barbara. You know, there's the state pressures. It's an equity issue. It's a housing issue. You know, we can't just not allow people to come in. It's a transportation issue. It's congestion. There's all these things. Can you just sort of, you know, close it out here with, you know, why should people hold on to these values that that Santa Barbara is a unique town? It's a unique place. And we need to continue to fight to preserve that because if we don't, we'll lose what makes it so special in the first place. And it could even harm our economy. You know, tourists might, tourism is a big part of it. And, um, you know, if it, if it looks like every place else, they might not want to come here. Yeah. Uh, but the main thing for me is that, you know, if you're talking about higher densities and so on, um, it's not going to provide the kind of housing we need. And it's just making the problem worse. So I think we can do both. You know, um, we, even, you know, years ago, under the um, pre previous method of determining density, the city found a way to permit, with um, some modifications, El Carrillo. It's 122 units to the acre. And they're all very small, 256 square feet, you know, like micro units. And uh, it's a very nice project. I've been in, in the, the units, uh, three of the units. Uh, and they were designed in such a way that there's light, natural light from both ends. And they only have eight foot ceilings. I know the architects with their nine, 10, 11 foot ceilings that they seem to think they have to have for, for livability. They're very pleasant. And in those little spaces, the residents have, have each made them their own. Uh, more recently, Planning Commission approved sanctuary centers which is going to be a tall building. It's going to be almost 60 feet, uh, but it's in the middle of the block and it's all capital A affordable. Let's see, there's a basement and then two floors of, with offices, uh, sanctuary centers, helps people with mental health issues. And they have, we'll have a dental clinic. They, they currently on site have- One on Cannon Perdido? No, it's 115 West Annapamu. Annapamu, yeah, you're right. Sorry. It's in the middle. One I'm thinking of, I just got the name address wrong. Right. It's, yeah. uh, it's behind existing buildings. Yeah. So it'll be in the middle of the block. And so it really, you know, from street level, it won't all be that visible because of the buildings that are already there. Um, and there'll be three floors for services, you know, medical, psychological, dental. And then the rest of it is residential studios for people who are having mental health issues. And I wish we could build have more of those to to approve. And that you know, it's they came in under the state bonus density law, and I think it's it's also 122 or 123 units to the acre. So we can, we have the ability under the AUD, which I think is, is working. It has 
you know, we, we have, there, there's actually a vacancy factor now, uh, which we hadn't really had for, you know, it was like around half a percent for years. Uh, it, it gotten up to 4.4% last spring. And um, 5% is considered, you know, what you need for flexibility for people to move around and find new habitation. Um, and hundreds of units have been built. Hundreds have been built in the 45-foot limit, uh, despite all the architects' complaints. And um, I think we should stay with that. Uh, Leslie Wiscom was also on the Planning Commission, and I happened to come up with the same idea. Um, and both of us are, don't want to go the FAR route, but since there's been all this discussion about micro units. We came up with a proposed amendment, which will be discussed at the November 4th meeting, amendment to the AUD ordinance that would allow up to 90 units to the acre of units that are 250 to 350 square feet. And we'll see if, you know, if there's a market for it and, you know, and if the developers want to go that route. Uh, you know, if, council decides to adopt it. Okay, Sheila. Well, I really appreciate your time and uh, so so much uh, knowledge that you're passing on. And uh, thank you for taking a few minutes to, to share your thoughts, your punditry on uh, the Santa Barbara election and just your knowledge and history of this town. So I appreciate it. Take care. Oh, well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Thank you.